Chapter Twenty of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Chapter Twenty Thomas Wingfold's Text. One. At dead of night, and of a winter night at that, the young minister sat on a gravestone in the churchyard, vainly attempting to answer two tremendous questions. Ought he to resign? That was the second of the two, and the first was even more momentous. The Reverend Thomas Wingfold was, according to George MacDonald, the curate in charge of the Glaston Parish Church. He did not quite know why. He had often wondered. He had caught himself one morning sitting beside the stream in Osterfield Park, pondering that strange problem. Why was he a minister? He noticed that the sun shone without knowing why it shone. The wind blew without knowing why it blew. The waters babbled over their gravelly bed without knowing why they did so. And he seemed to be living his life on precisely the same principle. For him, the ministry had always been part of the program. He was to go from home to school, from school to Oxford, and from Oxford into the church. He had neither applauded nor resented it. He had simply abandoned himself to the inevitable. It was his destiny. He felt it his duty to yield his personality to all the heights and hollows of the mold into which he was being thrust. The church was an ancient institution of undoubted respectability. She possessed certain emoluments and required certain observances, why should he hesitate to serve her? The work was not distasteful. The visitation of the sick was irksome to him, it is true. But on the other hand, he enjoyed the musical side of the services, and he was able to meet the demands of the pulpit in virtue of a parcel of manuscripts, old, yellow, and respectable, which his uncle, a doctor of divinity, had considerately bequeathed to him. And Thomas Wingfold, a young fellow of six-and-twenty, might have laid out the whole of his life on this plan, had there not come to him hurtling through the smoke of a companion's cigar a staggering and unanswerable question. It was the first of the two questions that, in the quiet churchyard, he sought to solve. And it was that first and major question that had started the second and minor one. It was George Bascom who had raised it. George was a brilliant young barrister and a skeptic. Everybody who knew him counted George a genuine good fellow, and George himself knew little to the contrary. See him, tall and handsome as an Apollo, and strong as a young Hercules, dressed in the top of the fashion, self-satisfied, but not offensively so, good-natured, ready to smile, as clean in conscience, apparently, and as large in sympathy as his shirt-front. George Bascom visited Glaston, he and the curate met one evening at the same table, and a companionship sprang up between them. In the course of a walk one day, the two young men passed the church. George looked at it and smiled, a little scornfully. The curate sought an explanation of the sneer. "'Well, I will be honest with you,' George replied, and stopping abruptly, he turned square towards his companion, and took the full-flavoured Havana from his lips. "'I like you,' he went on, "'for you seem reasonable.' and besides, a man ought to speak out what he thinks. So here goes. Tell me honestly, 
Do you believe one word of all that? The curate, George MacDonald says, was taken by surprise and made no answer. It was as if he had received a sudden blow in the face. He evaded a direct reply, and as a result, the question, as such questions will, rushed back upon him in his hours of solitude. That accounts for our finding him here, at dead of night, his brow bathed in perspiration, with these two questions taking it in turns to torment him. Do I really believe the things that I preach? Is it my duty to resign my charge? He reminds himself that he has done his best. He had entered the ministry under a sense of duty, and had conscientiously met its obligations. But it is cold comfort. It remained a fact that if Barrister Bascombe were to stand up and assert in full congregation that there was no God anywhere in the universe, he, the minister of the parish, could not on the church's part prove to anybody that there was. He could not even think of a single argument on his side of the question. Was it even his side of the question? Could he say he believed there was a God? That was the question. The question that George Bascombe had asked him once, and that he had since put to himself a hundred times. The question that he could not answer. The question that had raised another. Did he believe? Should he resign? He suddenly discovered that a gravestone on a November midnight is a cold chair for a study. He rose, stretched himself disconsolately, almost despairingly, looked long at the dark outline of the old church and at the tombstones huddled about him, and utterly miserable went home. 2. Happily, the world is not made up of clerics and infidels. Thomas Wingfold and George Bascombe were not the only people in Glaston. Every village contains a few oddities peculiarly its own. You cannot imagine such people living anywhere else. The oddities of Glaston were a couple of dwarfs, Joseph Polworth and his niece, Rachel. Within the stunted and unshapely body of Joseph Polworth, however, there dwelt a cultured mind and a beautiful soul. The dwarf was very poor, but he sometimes visited the parish church and occupied one of the free seats. He soon discovered that the sermons that the curate was preaching were not his own. They were copied, holus bolus, from the works of Jeremy Taylor. The dwarf knew that nobody else suspected it. He therefore resolved to guard the secret jealously. He knew nothing of the curate's indebtedness to his dead uncle, but he vaguely felt that the minister was sinning ignorantly rather than willfully. He therefore wrote a kind and courteous note, drawing his attention to the matter. The discovery of his uncle's dishonesty, and of his own complicity, intensified considerably the wretchedness of Mr. Wingfold's position, and added to the difficulty of his course. Moreover, it raised again the old question, did he really believe? If he really believed, would he have had need of such pitiful makeshifts and desperate expedients as these? In his extremity he sought the assistance of his accuser. He went to see the dwarf, and attracted by the little man's transparent sincerity and ready sympathy, poured out his heart to him. "'What shall I do?' he cried, enclosing his sorrowful confession. "'How am I to know that there is a God?' And then the dwarf threw a new light on the entire situation. He urged the minister to lay less stress on the poverty of his intellect, and to pay more heed to the hunger of his heart. The question is, he said, not, is there a God, but, if there be a God, how am I to find him? 
the best possible evidence of the existence of God would be to know him. And then he told of his own experience. He, too, had had his days of darkness and of doubt. He had read everything that came within his reach, and nothing had helped him. Then it occurred to him that, in common fairness, he ought to read the New Testament from cover to cover. I began, he said, but did not that night get through the first chapter. Conscientiously I read every word of the genealogy, but when I came to the twenty-third verse and read, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, I fell on my knees. To tell you all that followed, if I could recall and narrate it in order, would take hours. Suffice it that from that moment I was a student, a disciple. I had found the man Christ Jesus, and in him had found the father of him and of me. My dear sir, no conviction can be got, or, if it could be got, would be of any sufficing value through that dealer in second-hand goods, the intellect. I know only one way of proving to yourself that there is a God, and that way is Jesus Christ as he is revealed to the heart that seeks him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus the Savior from human sin, Jesus the revelation of the heart of God. The minister felt that the key that would turn the two locks of his dungeon, the secret that would solve both of his questions, had been placed in his hands. On the next Sunday he confessed from the pulpit that the manuscripts that he had been reading were not his own, and even before Sunday came he had set out, like the wise men of an older time, to find Jesus. 3. Like the magi following the star, the curate followed the glimmer of light that the dwarf had pointed out to him, and like the wise men's star it led him to the Saviour. He was being tormented one day by the old, old questions. Do I believe the things I preach? Is there a God? How can I tell there is a God? Shall I give up? Must I resign? When suddenly a great and golden text shone, like a burst of sunlight across his misty path. The words arose in his mind, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His heart filled. He pondered over them. I know only one way of proving to yourself that there is a God, and that way is Jesus Christ, the dwarf had said. Come unto me, and I will give you rest, said the text. He came. He, the curate, knelt at the feet of the crucified. And on the following Sunday, the whole congregation felt that the minister had suddenly become very sure of God. For he preached, and preached as he had never done before, from the words, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come then, he said, as he drew to a close, come and see whether his heart cannot heal thine. He knows what sighs and tears are, and if he knew no sin in himself, the more pitiful must it have been to him to behold the sighs and tears that guilt wrung from the tortured hearts of others. Let us get rid of this misery of ours. It is slaying us. Here is one who says he knows. Take him at his word. Go to him who, in the might of his eternal tenderness and human pity, says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 4. Every village has its tragedies as well as its oddities. At Glaston there dwelt Helen Lingard. It was at her home that George Bascom and the curate had met, for George was laying siege to Helen's heart. 
and Helen had at home a brother, Leopold, who was slowly dying, and dying with the awful sin of murder on his hands. In a frenzy of passion and jealousy, he had stabbed his sweetheart. Helen was at church that morning, and on her return she hurried to Leopold's bedside. "'I never saw such a change on any man as there is on Mr. Wingfold,' she said. "'Do you know he preached as if he actually believed the things he was saying? And not only that, too, but as if he expected to persuade us of them, too. His text was, "'Come unto me, and I will give you rest,' a common enough text, but somehow it seemed fresh to him, and he made it look fresh to me. "'Just think, Poldy,' she added, passionately. "'Just think. What if there should be some help in the great wide universe somewhere? A heart that feels for us both as my heart feels for you. Oh, wouldn't it be grand? If there should be somebody somewhere who could take this gnawing serpent from my heart. "'Come unto me,' he said." "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.' "'That's what he said. Oh, if it could be true!' And sometimes, when all the doors between his bedroom and the drawing-room were open, Leopold heard Helen at the piano singing the "'Comfort Ye' from the Messiah. And once, when she came to the words, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest,' she broke down, and then, with sudden resolution, she raised the top of the piano, began again, and sang the words as she had never sung them in her life. "'Helen,' said Leopold, a few days later, "'I have been thinking all day of what you told me on Sunday.' "'What was that, Poldy?' "'Why, those words, of course. What else? "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. "'You sang them to me afterwards, you know.' "'Helen,' I should like to see Mr. Wingfold. It was the one thing that Helen had most wished to avoid. Under the minister's influence, Leopold might reveal his guilty secret, confess his crime and whelm the family in shame. Mr. Wingfold came, however, and they talked about the text. The minister soon found that nothing calmed and brightened the dying man like a talk about Jesus. When, Mr. Wingfold said one day, when he was in the world, he said, "'Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. "'It is rest you want, my poor boy, not deliverance from danger or shame, "'but rest, such peace of mind as you had when you were a child. "'Come to him, ask him to forgive you and make you clean and set things right for you. "'If he will not do it, then he is not the Savior of men, and is wrongly named Jesus.' "'Leopold hid his face, but he yielded at last.' accepted the great invitation, confessed his dreadful sin, and found the peace that passeth understanding. And so did Helen. She was talking one day to her skeptical lover. "'You need no God,' she said. "'Therefore you seek none. If you need none, you are right, I dare say, to seek none. But I need God. Oh, I cannot tell how much I need Him. And I will go on seeking for Him to the last.' She sought the curate's help, and he pointed her to Jesus. It is the only way. The Magi, the scientists of an older time, had searched the universe for finality, for truth, for God. They found all that they sought at Bethlehem. 5. Is there a God? asks the skepticism of my soul within me and the skepticism of the world around. Search for him, replies the wise little dwarf at Glaston. 
and when you find him you shall know. Come unto me, says the text, going one step further. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is sound philosophy. What is it that the principal sharp sings? And must I wait till science give all doubts a full reply? Nay, rather, while the sea of doubt is raging wildly round about, questioning of life and death and sin, let me but creep within. Thy fold, O Christ, and at thy feet take but the lowest seat, and hear thine awful voice repeat, in gentlest accents, heavenly sweet, Come unto me and rest, believe me and be blessed. Come unto me, says the Saviour. Religion is intensely and essentially personal. Till we find him, we are groping among the fogs of November. When we find him, we are in the sunshine of June, and having found him, can never seriously doubt again. End of chapter 20